I'm going to try to say this in a way that doesn't sound critical. You also have a responsibility to other people because sometimes we can be so concerned about our own personal faith walk that we forget about the witness and the walk and the right and the we of the work because I there's no faith tradition that is all about you because yeah you could feel good and fill your tank up but if you then don't share it with other people in your household your neighborhood your community your co-workers that's how we got here this disconnected piece and so that's part of what I have to offer is is that I want folks to realize that part of what we're experiencing individually and collectively around loneliness and social isolation and increased depression and anxiety, but also woundedness from traumas come from our not connecting to others and sharing and giving and being in those supportive containers. Welcome to Everything is Spiritual, a podcast from Soul Care Urban Retreat Center. We're talking with local folks, faith leaders, creatives, thinkers, and community advocates, getting personal about their faith and spirituality and how it shows up in their daily life and work. I'm Kelly Skinner, your host, and I'm sharing these heart-centered conversations to invite you to become more aware that everything is spiritual and to deeply connect with what is most true and alive in your own everyday life. Today on the podcast, I have Karen Sims. Karen is the founder of Trauma and Resilience Initiative, a pretty new grassroots organization in Champaign-Urbana that works to reduce the impact of adverse community experiences like gun violence by healing and repairing those who have been impacted by trauma and working and equipping organizations and community providers so that they can be trauma and justice informed. We had a fascinating conversation about the importance of true community, literally a village of support, where peers and neighbors take care of one another and develop personal and community resilience. She's passionate about why we must move from an individual faith experience to a more collaborative and collective experience of healing together. I want to encourage you to listen all the way to the end of the podcast because we also talk about burnout and why it's so important to take time for rest and self-care. So good morning. Good morning. Uh, It's so good to have you here and to engage you in this conversation today. I'm just excited to talk with you. I'm excited too. So, and you know, just about everything, the conversation, the topic, and also to have a deeper conversation with you. Yeah. So why don't we just kind of jump in and I really like to ask people about their stories. And each of us has an individual story that tells us so much about the person that we are and the circumstances that we've had. So why don't you just begin by telling us your story? Yeah, so right, I'll I'll probably do the abbreviated, contracted version. 
will say that I am the child of two dreamers. So my mom and dad met working on affirmative action policies at Carnegie Mellon. Um, Both were first-generation college folks um, and had gotten recruited to do that. My dad was Jamaican and Cuban. My mom is um, African-American and Seminole. And so both from really like interesting, diverse backgrounds trying to make a living. And my dad had done lots of civil rights stuff, even without being a full citizen. I I always think that that's important because he didn't acquire his citizenship until he was in his 50s. But but you can Google him and he shows up in protest in Mississippi. He went to Tougaloo. So coming from that background, it was absolutely shaped being in defining. They both were committed to like working with people in communities that were traditionally marginalized. Um, although that they weren't married, my dad continued to sort of have a commitment to social justice. My mom was a teacher, educator, and she did a, a bunch of other things professionally. And that shaped me. I probably attended my first like social justice thing when I was in third grade. There was a protest with Cesar Chavez. I went to a Catholic school and we were advocating for migrant farm rights, right? And so that's how, like in terms of part of my story, it's almost like a tale of two stories. Like, so activism always embedded into my being. And I come from a legacy of collective and communal and historical trauma. And that also shapes and defines my legacy and on so many different ways. So my, um, again, my parent, my father, his parents came to the United States when there was unrest in Jamaica. His mom, you know, migrated to Jamaica when there was unrest in Cuba. So, right, people constantly searching for place and safety and belonging. My mom's family migrated into this really small town in Florida called Wow Mama, Florida. And they got there um, in part because there were family stories around um, them seeking safety and having support from the Seminole community that helped them make the path from Mississippi to Florida. And in the midst of that, when you have broken people really both committing to equity and believing things can get better, but also under-resourced and wounded, lots of complications happen. And I am both a witness of their success, but also a product of their woundedness. And that shapes and defines everything that I do and who I am and how I show up in the world because I know that all the good things that have happened sort of were always leveraged by stories of adversity. And we constantly show up and I was always raised to whom much is given, much is required. So so that is, you know, again, another one of those shaping and defining pieces where no matter how much adversity I was living through, uh, I always believed that I was meant to serve. And that was reinforced in my family story. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's beautiful. Thank you so much for being transparent and sharing a little bit about your background and the experiences in your life that have shaped and influenced you. Now you do marriage and family therapy. 
and so how did you get connected with that specific type of work? Um, and how does that show up for you now? Like your job, how does yeah. that influence who you are? So interesting. My degree is in marriage and family therapy. And the short answer is I got into that work because I was working in a woman's HIV and AIDS program and the nineties. And as a part of that, I actually was hired to start it. It was one of the first programs in, it was definitely the first program in the the state of Indiana. We were in Indianapolis and, uh, and I realized maybe a year into it is right. I probably should start my story a little bit even further back. So I, had been in law school. And so I had completed two years of law school and I had done an internship both at two places. One was the Chicago AIDS Project and another one was at the uh, domestic violence court piece. And I realized like, oh, uh, that I wanted to do more service, right? And so I was at a really amazing law school, practitioner law school, but I wanted to either do research or writing or do um, like public interest law. And when I looked at what the salary was, I was like, and the debt that I was requiring, I couldn't line it up. I was like, <laughs> I cannot. I was like, if I continue to require this debt, I can't. And so I was like, well, let me take a year to go home and really just sort of figure. So I went home and of course, you know, you work because you have to do something um, in that figuring. And I was like, well, maybe I wanted to, you know, maybe consider a different law school. I just wanted to sort it out. So I took this job. It was supposed to be a part-time job just to sort of figure it out, got in it, and then hired. It turned into a full-time job within six months. But then a year into that, I was like, I'm loving the work that I'm doing. And I realized that most of what I am doing isn't aligned with the experiences of what I was seeing. So um, HIV messages in the 90s were pretty much like, use a condom, don't use a condom or mm-hmm. abstain, right? Like it was pretty mm-hmm. like, you know, procreation focused. And mm-hmm. I was meeting women with really complex stories, right? Most, all, not most, all of the women I was supporting and working with and getting to know, um, we were doing sort of safer sex parties. That was the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was um, all of the women that I was meeting though, when you really got to know them, had sexual abuse histories. Um, many, many, many were in domestic situations, had, you know, just problems, you know, so we were saying, don't use a condom or say no for folks who had never found agency and voice or power. And I was like, this is not the right approach. I want to know how to do this work more effectively. And I uh, had during this period of time, right, where I'm sort of figuring out my life, I was in therapy at this place called Christian Theological Seminary. And my therapist said, you know, there's a really amazing nationally known program that can probably help you figure this out. Like it's very systems oriented. You should like think about applying. And then all of my girlfriends um, at the time who kind of knew me, they were like, we think you should apply. And so I applied, got in, and everybody was right in terms of it creating the pathway. So CTS has a really amazing marriage and family therapy program that was also like, but it also exposed me to gestalt. Like it was systems, it was designed for 
people wanted to do practice, but also people who were working with congregations and community organizations and systems because marriage and family therapy is a systems approach, right? So how do you heal communities and how do you think about healing systems? And many of my professors were also trained in something called psychoanalytic process. And I'm saying that because it really laid the groundwork for me to understand how a lot of unconscious process works and also made me really curious about trauma. It, it like all, like all of the, when I think about like how to heal communities and organizations and families, but also the individuals that I was encountering who had really complex trauma narratives, it was like the perfect training ground. And so I always kind of keep a small number of people that I coach and support and get a chance to do that. But my work has always been in healing, thinking about how to work with organizations and community groups and uh, service providers to help heal people. And I have done that in a lot of different ways. Again, like lots of program development and community engagement and community development. And most recently, I was privileged because once I found out about this thing called trauma-informed care. I completely was in the deep end about that. And that has been sort of my calling for maybe the last 10, 12 years, but more intentionally, it led to the formation of a not-for-profit called the Trauma and Resiliency Initiative. And I think I use everything that, you know, I was taught and trained on a regular day. So, right. So it helps me when I'm working with individuals who've been impacted by gun violence, because that's one of the things that we do through our community violence response team. We're a part, we coordinate that larger effort. It's not just us. It's a lot of different people. But if I'm, you know, having a conversation with a mom or a girlfriend or a survivor, I'm using those skills and hearing them. But also when I'm thinking about, you know, working with the coalition or stakeholders or community groups or a neighborhood and trying to think about like how woundedness shows up, but also how do we help heal, reimagine different. And I would be remiss if I didn't say that going to seminary, I didn't say this in the beginning, but right, I, I have always found my faith to be foundational for my resiliency and trauma healing and part of my witness. And so going to seminary deepened and strengthened my ability to do that. And, you know, so I believe in hope, but how do you operationalize hope? My training has allowed me to sort of think about how to do that. Wow. It really is interesting in hearing and witnessing your telling of your story um, how one part flowed into another. And it really does sound like you are standing centered right in your purpose and all your experiences have really led you in this direction to be a gift to the people that you serve. So that's really beautiful. So you had mentioned, you know, that you went to seminary and I don't know if I quite got what your faith denomination, if you if you do have a faith denomination. But I'd like to talk a little bit more about that. And how has your spirituality kind of grown and evolved? And how would you say your current beliefs have been shaped by your evolving spirituality? Oh, that's a great question. So I grew up sort of like 
really like a, a religious mutt. I went to Catholic school primarily. So that was an influence. I had a grandma who also took me to Baptist church. So I had that as an experience. And I would also spend my summers in this place called Salisbury, Maryland with uh, cousins who were like elders, right? Who were very fundamentalist, evangelical, more mm -hmm. Pentecostal. So I learned, right? multiple different expressions of God, multiple different ways. But even when one of those people weren't taking me to church, I would always go to church. Like that was just always something that I did. And I was really privileged. And some people have heard me say this to my aunt who have a complex family, but my aunt, my family was very, again, pretty unchurched. And I had an aunt who was I'm kind of closest to really kind of, you know, quote unquote worldly, right? But I love personality. And again, she and I have uh, so much in common. We would probably say that my aunt and my grandma, who I never got a chance to meet, were like Zora Neale Hurston kind of characters, very free spirited, you know, very open. But my aunt got converted in Germany. Her husband was staying there. And when she came back, we got connected to a church that was in our neighborhood called St. John Missionary Baptist Church. But she had a vision that the church should provide everything for youth and families that you would get, quote unquote, in the world. And so my church, and I was really, really active, a lead. I mean, again, it was so shaping and defining. So I was, you know, the representative to our district and the National Baptist Fellowship. And I spoke and I preached and I, you know, um, but I, we also had cheerleading and we had a basketball team and we had family game night on Friday and we had things to do on Saturday. And so I was doing everything that I did, quote unquote, in the world, like leadership, um, class president, right, running for office, a newsletter, whatever, we replicated. And I also got a chance to do it at church. And so pretty much if I wasn't doing something at school or like, you know, theater or whatever, I was doing it at church. And because of that, I was in some ways really protected, right? Like mm -hmm. even if I was experiencing abuse or whatever, I had this container or this network of peers and elders and people who loved on me and godparents and right like it was like this bubble that kept really the world um away and i was talking to some friends at home and we were all part of the same faith community and we all were sustained throughout regardless of what personal traumas we went this bubble that was created for us was just amazing. Like I, it was so healing. And so, I mean, it didn't matter if I was like, again, having a problem. I went to a predominantly white school and uh, it didn't matter if like no one there saw like me as gifted. I would go to my church and I had lots of elder women who would be like, baby, you are so brilliant and you are so smart and you were right. And they just spoke love into me. So so because I've had a, a vision of a community that and in the church also now it has reentry programs, it provides housing, it has a restaurant, it does entrepreneurship so people start visiting. It still does this vision like within 12 blocks, my church has that community. So having had that as a vision knowing that that is possible, I now want that for everybody because I know the things that helped me survive 
my ACEs score, right, is a nine. So adverse childhood experiences store. So things that help me survive all kinds of things that I know other people didn't was my village of support that was grounded in my faith. So part of it is I see faith as not just a external, right, theoretical thing, but a witness and a living and be, it's how we are with each other, right? So part one, and then, you know, all of those good spiritual practices. So when people ask me, why are folks so much more vulnerable now? And this is just Karen, right? Like I don't have research or science to prove this because people will say, you know, historically African-Americans or black body people have lived with adversity. What makes things so complicated now? Why can't people get over it? And I was like, because we've lost the structures that have sustained us. So Bruce Perry says we need rhythmic, repetitive, relational, respectful, um, restorative opportunities to help heal trauma. Well, if you're in church, particularly in the Black church experience, you are getting rhythmic, repetitive, relational respect. You are getting that embedded into your body, right? And so even if you didn't know what you were doing, right, we weren't going to therapy, but we were building into the fabric of our being the things that help heal us. So now we have to create all of these other structures to replicate what came natural, you know, to us. And there are stories of hope and resilience, right? The Christian, I'm Christian, the Christian witness is a story of hope and connection and restorative process and not being in isolation and being in community, looking out for the most marginalized. That is the Christian witness. And so when we're grounded in that Christian witness and embodying that witness, right? Like there's no way we go wrong. And so it is always the thing that fortifies and sustains me, right, is that I can go back to like, what were my sheroes and foremothers and other people who bear witness, right? Like the Bible is filled with Christian women who went through trauma and also survived and had, you know, in, in some ways mobilized, sometimes communities or, right, wars, right, to keep to protect them. Well, that is a part of my witness. Or when I think about, you know, in the New Testament, all of the women who surrounded Jesus, who were complex and diverse, but who support it, right? Like, those are stories that I can always lean into, that I don't have to be perfect, but that I just have to be consistent and continue to show up and knowing that there are doors of healing and hope and opportunity always available for me. Like, that's the point. Yes. Amen. First of all, (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to say preach it. (laughs) Um, And what you just said is so beautiful. And I feel like people don't always have that experience, depending on what kind of church they're in. And I feel like a lot of people long for those kinds of experiences and don't necessarily know where to seek and find them. And I think it is influential and it does impact the way that people live their lives and what they can do with their lives. You know, you're not just a a person, you're not just an island, you're not just a one that you need that 
you need that container, you need that support, you need those role models, all those things that you just spoke so eloquently about. I think that the Christian religion does have the opportunity to provide that. It's just not always there in a church community. Yeah. Right. And you, and part of it is, is that I think there's been so much can, for lack of a better word, contamination of the faith, right? Um, uh, the Reverend Moss, who's the pastor of Trinity in UCC in Chicago, has been doing this whole series about the truth about the church that it's been powerful, right? But he's sort of retelling the story through Acts, right? And through Bible study and his Sunday sermons around what what like even rethinking what Pentecost is, right? Like mm -hmm. people think about it as just sort of speaking in tongues or more of an evangelical. And it wasn't, it was a coming together of diverse nations so that we could all understand each other, right? That's the truth about the church. Mm -hmm. And so I think we've gotten so much fundamentalism and we've like contaminated cultural stuff with like faith stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and so people would not right. Some people would be like, you can't have cheerleading at church. Cause like what would cheerleaders wear? And that would be inappropriate in the how and the what and the, the ethics and the approach. It's not about the dress or mm -hmm. the makeup or the any mm -hmm. of that. It really is like, is it bearing witness? Is it, mm -hmm. you know, is it healing? Is it growth enhancing? Is it restorative? And so I think that all of the, biases or the fundamentalism. And again, I, I get that, but have gotten in the way of people also being restorative because the fundamentalism has made people feel like they don't belong or it is not for them or that they are excluded or that they have to show up in a certain way rather than saying, y'all come, right? Like this is a big tent. And when we screw up, we'll be accountable. And then when you screw up, we'll work with it because that's what a restorative God and right. Like that's what a restorative relationship is, is that there's always a way home. And imagine that as a witness, right? Cause it would be, be much more loving, but I think those rigid boundaries sort of stop people from creating a robust, vibrant, loving community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let's shift a little bit. Uh, so you, talked a little bit about the Trauma and Resilience Initiative, which is the organization that you work with. And that's a nonprofit that you really took the lead in forming in 2019 that works with and trains and educates and advocates for that sense of resilience and justice for individuals and for families, systems and communities. I really love the positioning statement that was on the homepage of the website it says creating equitable, just, and loving communities in which every person is cared for, connected, supported, and well. Wow. So tell me a little bit about the history of that organization, your role in getting it started and kind of forming in this community and also kind of the bigger vision. Mm -hmm. And maybe even talk a little bit about specifically some of the things that the organization has engaged in this year and where you're helping out. Yeah. All right. So I was a part of something in town called this, a system of care called the Access Initiative in Champaign County. So it was a federally funded a project, but it had been six years in the making. So before the funding, people in the community had been mobilized, trying to sort of think about how do we coordinate services and support for um, 
individuals and families with chronic mental health needs, but particularly who've been disproportionately impacted, like underserved or, or overserved, right? Like, so we were looking at disparities and disproportionality. And it came from an awareness that youth and families of color or low wealth families were just not served well by our classical mental health system. So there was a federal grant, people that worked on it, we had built sort of an infrastructure, we got the funding and got a chance to do it. The funding created lots of, it's a federal grant, so it was big and weldy, I think uh, much more complex and complicated. People were really hoping it could make an impact on justice issues. And what it did was probably give a lot of people, like it started building an infrastructure. So we got a chance to train and support and educate and reimagine new ways of service. It opened the door for something called Choices that came in, which was this managed care organization. But as a part of that, and I'm not like dishonoring his name, but as a part of our process, Kiwan Carrington was murdered. So, and we got news of our funding the month after Kiwan's murder. And so we were aware acutely that our community, we saw and witnessed the trauma that the community was experiencing communities across the board, but particularly communities of color. He was a youth that had huge footprints on both providers and organizations, but also other youth. Um, the impact was huge. And then we realized that his death was also a reflection of how we work together. We saw it as a structural failure for providers who had been, um, you know, we, we felt like we felt the impact, like we were like educated, like we have to do better. So we were being educated with this thing called trauma-informed care, and we had the opportunity. So thankfully, through great leadership, we decided that we would make sure that uh, many, many trauma-specific treatments were available to youth and families in our community. So we bought in some trainers who could do evidence-based practice. We also participated in the National Council for Behavioral Health Trauma Learning Collaborative, and that was a unique opportunity. We started assessing for trauma and tried to continue that work. When Tracy Parsons started the coalition, one of the committees that came pretty evident from that group was this trauma working group. And it was a very robust working group whose initial commitment was, let's just make sure more people in neighborhoods understand trauma and can articulate it and kind of right begin to start right being curious about it because a lot of what we were we were saying this looks like trauma and we were meeting people who were going no it's normal and we were like no it could be better let, let me tell you it could be better so we were like let's start off with basics and then we were also curious around we wanted to know we knew that group wanted to mobilize the community to have the capacity to take care of itself, right? Because that whole, like, we could say like, oh, we want more culturally responsive providers and we do, but also we also know that like social isolation and disconnection and fragmentation and not knowing that you can reach out to a neighbor to help you with a kiddo or for advice or whatever is a sign of a community's woundedness. So that group was really focused on, so we had our first effort called our CU Neighborhood Champions, where we wanted people to mm -hmm. champion each other. And those works continue to grow. So in 2019, one of the things that happened was that group realized like, 
if we keep doing what we're doing, we can't really get funded. And so that the work was all volunteer and it was chunky. And then we were starting to provide support for gun violence. And uh, because most of the people who showed up initially to volunteer, um, let say this lovingly, um, were loving, amazing, great, wonderful people, but they were white body folks. And in the middle of gun violence, when we were trying to kind of make those bridges to survivors, like having somebody who was loving and welcoming and great and wonderful, but was white, was a barrier to connections. And so we had this really weird year where we were having people who wanted to help. I would make a phone call. People wanted the help. And then when we tried to make the marriage work, it was not happening. And so, and then I ended up taking on a lot more of the load and responsibility because like they would only like talk to me and it was great because I would have people in the background who would do great, amazing work, but like we needed to do that. So we were like, so we need funding so that we can maybe um, help make um, people of color Mm -hmm. more on the front end because one of the things that we found out was, was that providers of color really wanted to be available, but many were working like part-time jobs because they needed the supplemental income. There was like a legitimate reason why they couldn't just volunteer because, you know, either single parents or individuals, Mm -hmm. they really needed that second stream of income. So we were like, this is an equity issue. We've got to get funding. So we have continued to provide that support for survivors and it has continued to grow. Last year, we thought we were gonna, not hopefully this isn't sound offensive, we thought like maybe we would get out of, we're hoping another organization would come forth. We thought like maybe it would not happen. Our funding, the funding that we were getting, it went away. And so we were like, well, like maybe it's time. Maybe like there's another group or entity. And it was like, it, it, you'll appreciate, it was like, God was like, Oh, really? Because then our phone started ringing <laughs> off the hook. And currently, um, we probably get, I mean, we probably we're averaging, unfortunately, four referrals a week of, wow. of individuals or families impacted by gun violence. Um, and so people that we helped previously now are saying, hey, I heard this mom called me. And then we get people from the hospital or from schools. It was like the infrastructure that we spent a lot of time building Mm -hmm. um, manifested. Finally, we have this foundation where we have African-American and other diverse, really culturally responsive people who are available to help, who can be Mm -hmm. that front door. But then we have workers um, who can work on the back end. We need far more people because, again, we can't keep up with the demand. So we do that. We continue mm-hmm. to keep training and educating people about trauma and trauma-informed care because we want a world where it's not just a small bubble of people who can provide support. We want everybody that they touch to provide the healing, loving, connected. We still go back to that Kiwan version of the world where providers are fully equipped to provide the healing and support folks need in a way that is culturally responsive, but also healing and not deficit-based because 
part of what we had we experienced is that when we have punitive policies and it's deficit based and it's not resiliency basing, it reinforces the woundedness, the individual, the community, and the collective woundedness. So we still do that. And one of the things that I'm also really excited about is that we have uh, funding to do this neighborhood building project. So we have mm-hmm. trained and hired, uh, going back to that vision of neighborhood champions. So we have wisdom leaders. So we have elders that we've trained to be available to talk to other elders and young people. We've got peer ambassadors. So we've got youth uh, that we've trained and this is for a grant through the city of Champaign. Um, and then we have neighborhood navigators who people can call uh, to help them understand how to navigate systems or answer questions. And primarily one of the focuses they're working on is around COVID, but we're Mm -hmm. also doing it around community violence so that if people are like, where do I go for help? And if you happen to have complex needs, we bring your village together or help build a village and we do wraparound, but wraparound as not just this theory, but as this old-fashioned, bringing the village together to surround you with love and care till you get back on your feet until wellness comes. And so, yeah, so it's a beautiful vision. um, And it's been amazing, like, just to see that project off the board. So the education, the training, the visioning of healthy and healed, right, trying to operationalize our mission statement both here. And I work with the projects in Indianapolis, so we get a chance to also do that there a lot. And that's always amazing too. Wow. So your last question is in the future, right? Our hope is that we have two, right? One is we would love to figure out because we're in a university town, if this vision of empowering and equipping the community works, right? Like, mm-hmm. does it really create healing, more healing and safe communities? The data says that if people feel safe, they will behave in ways that promote safety. So mm-hmm. we know it's not a short-term solution to addressing gun violence, but if we can stop the bleeding, perhaps long-term solution, if we can heal your heart while it's most vulnerable, um, maybe that stops you know, violent trauma begets more violent trauma. So we can heal the trauma and also promote collective healing. So we want to do that. We have a vision that um, particularly for communities of color, we would have lots and lots of people, uh, Dr. Ruby Mindenhall put this in. She was like, well, what if you were training a hundred people in every neighborhood in psychological first aid and skills for psychological recovery, which is so faith-based. So that would be our vision is that we would have particularly communities impacted by adversity, that they would be equipped to at least neighbor to neighbor to respond to the hurt and healing. And then, you know, we also want just more equity, more Mm -hmm. leadership, more empowerment, and we want to be involved in helping uh, create more equitable solutions. So, you know, when you think about how do you take sort of mental healthy stuff and my faith principles and think about how do you operationalize it? right? Like mm-hmm. you marry them and you're like, yeah. you, you do this in ways. And so, right, you know, yeah. we would love for churches to have people, right? Like, you know, there's a huge yeah, fantasy and in this moment, we, we're just sort of plugging along because we're two of us and some contractual folks and we just keep chugging along and having faith that, you know, mm-hmm. it will come. 
Yeah. So I really love this very transparent intersection between spirituality and resilience. And one of my own kind of personal purposes is about provoking wholeness. And so you're talking about moving from woundedness together towards wholeness. Um, And so are there specific benefits to people to be connected with a religious community through this work and there are people who have been wounded by institutional religion um, and a lot of people are moving towards being identifying themselves as spiritual but not religious Mm -hmm. so um, how does that make sense for those people yeah for like we could have a part two conversation i'm gonna say the simple answer is we get sick in community we get well in community right and so for people who are spiritual and disconnected to community your healing will always be fragmented because you need that village so you need some of the infrastructure yeah and so part one part two is you probably know this you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like I'm going to use therapy as this, like people will tell me, like I once went to a therapist and it was a bad experience. And I was like, okay, how many therapists are there? And they're like, oh, lots. And I was like, so would you do that with a doctor? Would you be like, oh, I once went to a doctor and it was a bad doctor. So if there are many, many, many pathways and congregations and communities for you to check out. So I always say like, make a list of the things that you are looking for, but also make sure that that list is a human list because we have human people working together, creating human experiences, right? A church Mm -hmm. is still very human. It is around spiritual practices and spiritual principles and what does it give and provide you and your family and your network. Um, and so make a list, right? Like a, like a, what would this look like? Mm-hmm. And I'm ideally hoping that it is a relational model and it has some accountability. And when they screw up, they tell you we screwed up and there's transparency, right? If you think about those trauma informed principles, it's safe physically and emotionally. It's trustworthiness and transparency. Um, there's voice and choice. So there's opportunity for you to express yourself. Um, it's empowerment based. It's empowering for you and your family. Uh, and there's collaboration. So if they don't know how to do something, they know how to get on the phone, they share power with you. Right. And, uh, and I always throw in that, that there are, that it's restorative. Right. And so that you allow for that, because if you are spiritual and not religious, disconnected from a community and also not getting the full amount of healing that you need. Also, it's okay. So I'm going to try to say this in a way that doesn't sound critical. You also have a responsibility to other people because sometimes we can be so concerned about our own personal faith walk that we forget about the witness and the walk and the Right. And the we of the work, because I there's no faith tradition that is all about you, because, yeah, you could feel good and fill your tank up. But if you then don't share it with 
other people in your household, your neighborhood, your community, your coworkers. That's how we got here, this disconnected piece. And so that's part of what I have to offer is, is that I want folks to realize that part of what we're experiencing individually and collectively around loneliness and social isolation and increased depression and anxiety, but also woundedness from traumas come from our not connecting to others and sharing and giving and being in those supportive containers. So do that. So I just invite people. I just want to say in this moment, I think the work of people coming together with similar faith traditions to really make a difference Um, doing things that matter, doing things that are meaningful are more important now for communities, but also for themselves. It builds neuroplasticity. This is where like the hard science of trauma and the touchy-feely parts of trauma come together. We get sick in community, we get well in community. And so give to the community. We're, We're being called for that, but that's how we're designed neurobiologically, which is so exciting. Yeah. You totally hit the on the head. I want to talk a little bit about the people. So you're working with people who need to be served, but you're also somebody who is in a helping and serving role, and you work very closely with providers um, who help and serve other people. And one of the reasons why I wanted to create soul care in our community was to provide this very accessible space where people could really slow down and experience quiet and rest and renewal. And this is even, this is so important for everyone, but I feel it's especially important for those who are in those helping roles or professions, you know, the the moms, the, the, the aunties, the grandmas the educators, the our healthcare professionals, the social workers and counselors who are out there, um, our community agencies. Um, but what I'm finding is that people who are in those roles are burnt out and they don't, you know, they don't, they don't follow their own advice and they don't take care of themselves. And so they're burnt out um, they're resentful sometimes, they're anxious, they're, um, sometimes they're almost martyrs who try to hold it all together while denying themselves. Um, and so they, they won't take that time out for themselves anywhere. Um, so talk about that tendency yeah. Yeah. for people who are in those helping roles And how someone might really take an honest look at themselves to see if those words pertain to them. And then what are some of the recommendations that you have for people to overcome that tendency and move towards recovery? Yeah, that's a mouthful. So the short answer to the last piece is uh, there's a great quote. Love is only as good as the lover. And she goes on to articulate that, you know, broken people give broken love. So burnt out people are giving burnt out love. So if you think that, you know, that you going above and beyond what you have the ability to and capacity to do, if you are burnt out and tapped out, you are giving 
burnt out and tapped out love. And who wants to do that? Who feels called to do that? Right. Like, so, so know that our goal is to give from our overflow, not from our cup. Right. And so uh, to continue to be thinking about that, that it is not selfish to be centered in self, right? Even when you're uh, having the mask come down, they tell you to take care of yourself first. And that sometimes we have our own woundedness. The other piece around this is that, you know, is that sometimes some of that does not come from a loving place. It comes from our brokenness. And that is why we need to be in community, good supervision, good accountability, good mentors, good people in our lives that can help us be clear about what keeps us going. Because sometimes what's got us going and doing it comes from our own um, soul, right? A lot of us are leading and bleeding. And, and, and what we create is a lot more bleeding, unfortunately. And it's why we're, ref- again, a community is reflection of our brokenness. And and if it we, we keep think, seeing things escalated and awful, It could be because we need to do a lot more reflection on what is it that we're planting into the seeds because we could be planting contaminated soil. To that end, why Tribe believes in working with organizations around being trauma-informed and healing organizations is that organizations should have policies, procedures, and practices that allow people to be well. Because Mm -hmm. if I'm in a structure that reinforces all of the pathology or vulnerability or even rewards my not taking a day off or doesn't allow for that, right? As a matter of fact, we could create like these systems that say, burn yourself out. That's the gold standard. That's what we do here. Mm -hmm. Um, Or like take a day off, but a day off when I'm going to, when you come back, no one allows for that. There's like 13 more work projects assigned Mm -hmm. for you. When we create those unhealthy systems, people sort of feed into them, right? And so we want organizations. And so we have a trauma-informed care learning collaborative where organizations can apply and walk alongside, where we help them think about like, how do you change your policies? And what could you do to promote more healing and wellness? Because yes, we want people to take advantage of uh, soul care and other spaces like that. And we also want organizations to support and Mm -hmm. to build it into the fabric that it is what we do and we can be both cost effective and efficient and we can be good. And the last thing that I will say, and this is sort of my advocacy piece around that is we as taxpayers um, also need to be careful with what we expect from providers because part Mm -hmm. of these systems like who are Medicaid billable or grant funded Sometimes it's grantors that create unreasonable demands and expectations that don't promote healing and wellness and growth. They promote numbers and a whole bunch of other things that, again, reinforces pathology. So I want to reimagine a funding system, uh, organizational system that is designed to create the outcomes that we want, right? What's that quote? If we want to go fast, go along. If we want real healing, we've got to be slow and intentional and funders and other people who are investing need to sort of see this. And as taxpayers, we need to be okay that maybe this un- 
reasonable expectation doesn't happen. So maybe we need more of something and not less of something. So mm-hmm. we have some, we as citizens have a responsibility. And I said that was going to be the last thing, but you know, my final <laughs> plug is, and this is probably controversial, so I probably shouldn't say it, but from my understanding of how the church was designed, the role of the church, it was designed initially right not only to convert but also to provide human services to take care of the elderly the widow the children the sick the right Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. and when people have to beg for food and we have these structures that you know don't necessarily provide the family the community the things that are needed i also feel like we as the church are called to do better mm-hmm. with thinking about our role in taking care of vulnerable and marginalized communities. And that is not crumbs. That is a full throated like ministry mission does not just happen abroad. It happens in your backyard. And if you are called to care, you are called to care here. Um, and so that is probably the most controversial thing that I want to say, but I, I think it's how we've designed this. Mm-hmm. Yes. I think we need to proclaim that over and over and over again. And if you choose to affiliate with a church, we are the church. The people are the church. The building is not the church. And let's invest more in our people and what they need and maybe a little bit less in our building and our operations and our administration and our bureaucracy of the church and make it less of an institution and more about people. Yeah, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And right, like imagine a scholarship that allows people to come and spend more time, like, right, mm-hmm. like all of it, medical, all of that. Mm-hmm. Like, let's think about healing for real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I love your, again, love, love, love everything that you're doing and committed yeah. to doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, yeah, it's just yeah. beautiful. But it's not just all about one person. It's, it's mm-hmm. about changing the systems and putting on new lenses to look at um, old problems. Yeah. Yeah. So how can people, if they want to learn more about um, Trauma and Resilience Initiative, how can they learn more? How can they connect with you? How can they get involved? How can they give you money? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, Um, particularly in this moment where, again, our community violence response work is unfunded, so we need lots of help. But we have a website, so it's the Trauma Resilience Initiative org right um yeah and i'll put have, it in the show notes right, yeah, and we have a facebook so please 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 find us on cu tribe we're on all the social media so instagram and twitter i don't think we do a lot on twitter that's mm-hmm. our under but we do a lot on facebook uh, all yeah. of our events fortunately because of the mental health board right now all of our trainings are always free so if you are a congregation or a community group or whatever you can take advantage we try to make those available and if you want to have us come in and do intentional work because you want to pay us we love that because that could be another way um, that can contribute to the whole we take all of those contributions and give them back uh, to the not-for-profit to make sure that that work is supported Um, and if you have gifts and talents so if you Um, want to help support survivors with gun violence, like you have a chaplaincy or a lay ministry or parish ministry, 
reach out to us. We would love to. If you want to be available to provide psychological first aid, we'd love to work with you. If you have training and expertise to share, again, we make room for all gifts. Like we, when I say like, we want to see us all interconnected. So think about an idea and go, hey, Karen, and everything that we do and create has come from people who come to us and said, let's try it. And that's how we've sort of shown up and, and, and done everything that we've done is really by like listening deeply to the community and trying to really be working with them. Mm-hmm. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, and I encourage you um, to please reach out because I think there's many, many people in this community who have some something they could offer to support the work that you're doing. And with... Uh, an uptick and a substantial uptick in community gun violence. I think um, every little bit can help yeah. um, to address this issue and, and the people who are directly affected by it. Yeah. yeah. And the providers, I mean, even if it's, you know um, one of the things, so like, I, I know we're done, but like we have, you know, some of the people in our mental health support network are also like school social workers or work in other places. And so when incidents happen, these are sometimes kiddos or the family members of kiddos or sometimes their own family members that are impacted. So I am now really also committed to wanting to make sure that I can find resources so that they can take a weekend or come to soul care. Like we are visioning, like trying to find funding so that their hearts can stay open for this work um, Mm -hmm. because we need to do a much better job of taking care. When they work with us, they get like $30 per contact. And sometimes the contact could be like four hours. That's not a lot of money um, because we try to use all the resources for families. And Mm -hmm. so they're getting something, but it's not like covering the bills. And and so if you can imagine like for them, how much weight they're carrying. So, you know, we went where we can and when somebody gives us something extra and we can throw in like a free meal or something for the people who are really on the front lines, really carrying the load, it makes such a difference. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you have uh, some, do you have a way for people to connect with you to say, I would like to donate something to help support the providers? So right on my website. And then you can also, yeah, you can email it. And so people who donate on our link on PayPal can put a note like, hey, we want this for X, Y, and Z. We're, okay. we're completely open to that. Perfect. Perfect. So we've had some really in-depth conversations and really big questions that we've addressed and you've done such a good job about. Um, I'm going to give you a short answer to this. (laughs) So I do have some rapid fire questions that I like to ask all my guests just to, again, give a sense of the snapshot of you at this moment in time. Um, And I just think it's a fun way to close the conversation. I love it. So the first question that I have is um, something people get wrong about you. Oh, that I'm an extrovert. Uh, what is your most favorite or most meaningful spiritual practice right now? Listening to like sermons. So that like, yeah, so I all day long, all night long sermons. Huh. Fills you up, huh? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where do you see the divine as most alive for you in this season? Uh, probably in the weather. Hmm. Yeah. You want to speak about that? Yeah, just because... It seems like some days it, it, the rain comes when there is lots of grief and loss. And it's, there's just been this 
intensity of expression that seems like it matches the moment. I just feel like, again, it's raining now. I feel like God's presence is through the rain, through the tears, through the, yeah. So yeah, Mm -hmm. some of the storms have matched the turmoil that we've had in the community. So I Mm -hmm. definitely, when I look out in the weather, I go, okay, you're Mm -hmm. doing your thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a method to your madness and I just have to keep trusting you. Mm -hmm. And being present to that. That's so beautiful. What's one thing in your life that might seem ordinary, but is sacred to you? The ability to have these kind of conversations, like just when I get a chance to talk to a mom who's lost her son or at a hospital, like people think of that as work. But each of those conversations, I go into them prayed up. And to me, they're always sacred that somebody would be open and they would share with me and that in their greatest moment of loss, they would trust me with their stories is the deepest honor. And I am forever humbled when I, you know, bear witness in that space. Mm -hmm. What are you deeply grateful for right now? Family and faith. Yeah. And finally, name a book that you would recommend our audience to check out. I can't think of it, like, because about 30 books came up. (laughs) Um, But actually, can I I know you asked for a book, but I just watched a a quick documentary yesterday that I would love for more people to check out. And it was, believe it or not, like it was Mary J. Blige's My Life documentary. And I thought when people are really trying to understand the moms or the young people in our community in this moment, I just thought her witness through that was so like it 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 was like i was like this is every woman that i particularly black bodied woman that i've talked to and so i was like if people are trying to understand like what it's like to have gone through the crack epidemic in this moment it was just bad but again i there are tons of books that i wish i but but it was one of those things that just like landed in a way that i was like we should be talking about this. Uh, Mm -hmm. There's a really great documentary on black boys that's on Netflix. That's also like for people who are trying to figure out this work, there's some good stuff now to really like go here and not here. Like that will Mm -hmm. help you downshift. Yeah. Was that Mary J. Blige documentary on Netflix too? No, it's on Amazon prime and the black boys documentary. That was a part actually saw the black boys documentary on at the South by Southwest. They did their conference uh, virtually, but then found it on Netflix. And again, best thing that I could recommend. Perfect. Well, I'll definitely link to both of those okay. so people can have a chance to Please, find yeah, them and watch it. Because yeah. Um, yeah, I think I think the one of the longest journeys that we have is going from our head to our heart. Yeah. And if we can connect on a heart level with people's stories and experiences and really have compassion towards them, it, it just helps us go a long way towards connecting and honoring the people around us. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, this thank you so, so much. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to have this conversation. So it, it was amazing. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. And I look forward to seeing you at Soul Care sometime yes, soon. Yes, yes, I know. Again, <laughs> practice what I preach. <laughs> and, uh, and please don't forget um, our listeners to uh, check out the Trauma and Resilience Initiative and think about how you might be able to support this amazing work in our community. 
Becky. So thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Everything is Spiritual and taking time to nourish your soul. Tune in each week for a little community and a lot of conversation. Or subscribe in your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. For more resources around spiritual exploration, restoration, and transformation, be sure to sign up on our mailing list at experiencesoulcare.com. Visit our website for information on retreats, workshops, and services from our partners. Or better yet, come visit our welcoming space in Urbana to say hi and get a steaming cup of tea. Soul Care Urban Retreat Center is a warm, welcoming, and accessible place for you to refresh, renew, and restore your mind, body, heart, and soul. We set a great big table, and everyone is welcome. Until next week, be well.